This is exactly right. And this is where, as parents, we can conduct a personal inventory. We can ask ourselves, is, is there an opportunity for me to do more asking? Because when you ask, you transfer the analytical work to the child. You're not doing it for them. If you keep telling them, then you're, ta- you're removing the requirement of critical thinking. You're doing it for them. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I am Dr. Dan, your host, and let me tell you about our mission. That mission is to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. We believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives, happiness, health, and engagement. At Parent Footprint, we believe that awareness is the foundation for your vision of successful parenting. And with increased awareness and intention, you can be purposeful about the footprint you are leaving on your children. Today's show is called How to Create Psychological Safety in Your Home. Let me introduce you to our guest, Dr. Tim Clark, who is the founder and CEO of Leader Factor, a consulting, coaching, and training organization. Dr. Tim is an international authority in the fields of psychological safety and innovation, large-scale change and transformation, and senior leadership development. He is the author of Epic Change, How to Lead Change in the Global Age, Leadership Bones, The Employee Engagement Mindset, Leading with Character and Competence, Moving Beyond Title, Position, and Authority, and now his new book, which we will be talking about today, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation. He is also the developer of the EQometer, an emotional intelligence assessment. I got to keep telling you a little bit more about Dr. Tim here because he's an amazing person. Um, no surprise, he's highly sought after as an advisor, coach, and facilitator to CEOs and senior leadership teams all over the world. He has consulted with companies that you all know well, American Express, Disney, Dow Chemical, the list goes on and on. And he earned his PhD in social science from Oxford University and was both a British research scholar and a Fulbright scholar at Seoul National University in Korea. He earned his master's degree in government and economics from the University of Utah, and I love this. As an undergraduate at BYU, he was named a first-team American, all-American football player where he completed a triple-degree cum laude. Wow. Tim, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Dan. I'm happy to be be on with you. Uh, Do you have more hours in your day that you can tell us about how to... um, how to be efficient and achieve at to the level that you have been doing for so long. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, I learned something, Dan, when I was in college, I learned about statistics and I learned two very important statistics. Number one, our strength and conditioning coach came to me once and he said, so Tim, do you know what the chances are that you're going to be injured playing division one football? And I said, no. And he said, it's a hundred percent. The only question is, how, how bad? So that was statistic number one. Statistic number two was, he said, um, do you know what the chances are that you'll have a long and fruitful career in the NFL? 
<laughs> and I said, no, please enlighten me. And he said, well, that's, that's less than 1%. So you have a 100% chance you're going to get injured and a less than 1% chance that you'll have a fruitful NFL career. So therefore, go to class. And so, so I learned very quickly that it was in my best interest to go to class. So I, I started going to class. And one thing led to another. Boy, boy, did it. Um, I like the directness there, right? That's, that's some good consultation. Just straight, straight up. Yeah. So um, I, I didn't read the part of your bio which talks about all of the different places you worked and how that your career transformed because I wanted to save it for us to talk about. So tell us, you know, how did you step into leadership? Um, and, and how did your personal and professional evolu- um, evolution evolve? Well, I think it's, it's an accident, uh, at least it wasn't planned. Let's say that it wasn't mm-hmm. part of the master plan because when my wife and I came back from Oxford back to the States, I wasn't quite finished with my dissertation. And so I thought, well, I need to get a job. We were poor graduate students. The ramen budget was gone <laughs> and I needed to, I needed to earn money. So I found a job of all places in a steel mill. And so I thought, well, I'll work for a year, finish my research, and then I'll go get a teaching position at a college or university somewhere because that was my career path. I just wanted to teach. Well, as it turns out, uh, I went into the steel mill and long story short, after three years, they asked me to be the plant manager. Mm -hmm. And so for five years, I managed the last remaining fully integrated steel plant west of the Mississippi River with, what did we have? We had like 3,000 workers and this big giant place, 1,700 acres, uh, massive megaton realm. And it was there that I started to really learn whether the elegant theory that I had learned at Oxford was true or how true it was, and it was a it was a testing ground. It was a place where I could be a, a participant observer, and I could really test the things that I had learned, and I could really learn about power. I could learn about human relationships. I could learn about influence. And these are all the things that – it's a different social setting, but these are all the things that are most important to learn as human beings. And so that's how it began, and I stayed in business and then went into the consulting and training arena. That's kind of how it started. Mm. You know, I have to ask you, because um, those of us practitioners out there, there's always this uh, this question of those in the ivory towers, right? All the theories that we learn and the professors that teach us, and... Um, they don't always connect. The beautiful theories do not always connect with the real world. So what did you find from your elegant theory to practice at the mill? Well, I learned that, first of all, theory is very important because theory attempts to explain what's going on, especially in cause and effect relationships. But theory is almost always an oversimplification, which means that there will be parts to it that aren't quite accurate. Uh, So it's still helpful, and we still need theory. We need to overlay it against reality to see what it does explain and what it doesn't explain. So Mm -hmm. it does give us insights, Mm -hmm. and that's very important. 
So we don't want to throw it all out, but we do want to realize that when we test it against reality, it's always going to be wrong to some extent, but it's always going to be right to some mm-hmm. extent. That's very mm-hmm. helpful. Mm-hmm. So early on, you I mean, from from teacher uh, want to be one on the road to uh, professor to manager in the real world in uh, real America, right? So what I mean, what were some of those? huge, I don't know if they're ahas or they're, um, or was it a slow building, um, process for you that you took from that experience? Sure. Well, let me name one, one of the first great epiphanies, I guess, and it never ends is that leadership is about influence. Influence is the best synonym in the English language for, for, um, leadership. So it's really all about influence. It's not about title. It's not about position. It's not about authority. And so for your listeners, Dr. Dan, it's probably quite relevant because the family is the most fundamental social unit on planet earth. Mm -hmm. And so what's parenting about? It's about influence. Mm. So there we have a direct application, regardless of the social unit you're in, leadership really is about influence. Hmm. I love that. I love that. And, uh, you know, it makes me think of, uh, what they say about the greatest, the greatest leaders, you don't know that they're leading and those who are being led don't always even know they're being led. Hmm. You know, I, I probably butchered that, but it sort of, it speaks to this whole notion of how do we, how do we lead, you know, whether it's in what, so whether it's in business or in family, how would you say, we lead most effectively through this influence? One of the tools that I use in my executive coaching practice is what we call the spectrum of influence. And so maybe for your listeners, maybe you can visualize this. So think of a, think of a spectrum, so a horizontal line. And at one end of the spectrum is coercion. So that's one pull. That's one end of the influence of the spectrum of influence. At the other end, so we have, we have coercion at one end. We have manipulation at the other. And so you have to think about this. There's always tyranny at the extremes. So if you're trying to influence people, if you're trying to influence your family, if you're trying to influence your spouse and or children out of coercion, which is force, or out of manipulation, which is based on deception, then you really have moved away from legitimate influence. Legitimate influence is in the middle, and I would characterize it with the word persuasion. And so you have to think about what are the legitimate forms of influence uh, based on persuasion? What do you use? Well, you Mm -hmm. use vision, you use encouragement, you use data, you use logic, you use, uh, you model through example. These are all legitimate forms of influence. If you find yourself going to the East or the West, if you find that you're veering towards coercion on one hand, on the one hand, or manipulation on the other, then at some point you're abdicating leadership. You're not leading anymore. You're pulling out, for example, with coercion, you're pulling out your power tools. With manipulation, you're pulling out your tricks, 
that's not leadership anymore. So you've mm-hmm. left, you've essentially left the domain of leadership and, and you're, you're using substitutes, um, proxies for real leadership based on, on legitimate tools of persuasion. That's what I would say. I think that's a mm-hmm. one way that helps people understand where do I need to be? I need to become a student of the tools of persuasion that are in the middle of that spectrum. Okay, so we are clear. What would you what do you teach are the most effective tools? Like the what is in the toolbox? Man, there's a lot of things in the toolbox. Mm-hmm. So for example, one of the things that we try to stay away from is as leaders, and this I think applies to the workplace or the home or any other social unit, we try to not push the fear button. Mm-hmm. When we push the fear button, and this is based on the research that I've done for this most recent book on psychological safety, when we push the fear button that changes people's behavior, how does it change people's behavior? What it does is it activates or triggers what we call the self-censoring instinct. Mm-hmm. And every human has one and every child has one. It, and when So if we activate a person's or a child's self-censoring instinct, then they're going to retreat, they're going to recoil, and they're going to manage personal risk. So they're going to they're going to behave differently because it's not safe. Right. And when it's not safe, we are not learning and we're not growing and we're not developing the way that we could. So you can see that fear really does neutralize performance and it does neutralize learning and it does neutralize contribution. That's a very serious thing. Mm-hmm. that I think every parent needs to think about. Mm-hmm. And it's completely consistent with the latest brain-based uh, parenting research, which basically says exactly what you just said, is when that limbic system, that amygdala, that fear center is activated, our kids go into fight and flight. It shuts down the frontal lobe, which is the lobe part of our brain that actually takes in information and processes it. And therefore, there's no opportunity for actually learning and generalizing the situation for a future in a future event. Right. Yeah. Well, I'll get, let me give you an example or a statistics, a statistic that relates to that amygdala hijacking. So in the United States of America, we have a young person that drops out of high school every 26 seconds. Hmm. So think about that. It's, it's astonishing to think about. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, if you do some root cause analysis, though, it gets even more interesting because what we realize pretty quickly is that barring some legitimate learning disability, these students who are dropping out, they, they can do the work. It's not, it's, it's not a question of whether they have the intellectual bandwidth to do the work. They can do the work. So why are they dropping out? They're dropping out because they've lost confidence. They don't feel that they're supported. They don't feel that they're loved. And, mm-hmm. and so they've had experiences in their lives that have triggered the self-censoring instinct that have activated the pain centers of the brain and have shut them down. That's why they're dropping out. They can do the work. And so 
we realize pretty quickly that if if we interact this way, we are we're blocking learning and growth and development and progress. And it's a very serious thing. And so as leaders in the home and outside of the home, we've got to learn how to 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 lead legitimately and and not push that fear button because it's it's disastrous. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, leads us into the elements of creating uh, positive growth and change, which I am thinking has something to do with psychological, creating an environment of psychological safety. I think it does. And here's, here's what the research bears out. Learning is both an intellectual and an emotional process. You, it's those two those two things are interwoven and you can't pull them apart. And so if you're leading and if you're teaching, you are engaged in that dual process that is both intellectual and emotional. And so your job is to be an architect of the social system. It's to be a curator of the culture and the most profound culture level of culture that we have in society is at the level of a family and a home. Mm-hmm. And so as mm-hmm. parents, uh, more than any other thing, your modeling behavior determines the prevailing norms of that culture. That culture is, I think it was R- Ralph Waldo Emerson that said years ago, he said an institution is the lengthened shadow of an individual. So think mm-hmm. about that in the home. The, hmm. the, the family culture is the lengthened shadow of the parents. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. And, or, and organizational culture research bears this out too. We have, we have what's called the culture formation hypothesis, which is a very simple concept. And it basically says that the, the, the modeling behavior of the leader is the single most important factor in the formation of culture. And it's really true. Mm-hmm. So, how did the research? How did you come to create this book on the four stages of psychological safety, and and to come up with these four stages? Well, there's there's two forces at work, Doctor Dan, in society that are blowing up this concept. The first force is what I'll call the moral or ethical force. And so I've been watching this very, very carefully over the last 25 years as I study and practice in organizational culture. And the ethical moral force that is being brought to bear on organizations is saying this. It's saying, look, we have tolerated intolerable behavior in organizations since the dawn of the industrial revolution. What do I mean by that? We have normalized harassing behavior, shaming behavior, bullying behavior, and we can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and there's this incredible demand. There's this clamor, especially for millennials who are pouring into the workforce and they're saying, I'm, I'm not going to put up with it. Mm-hmm. If, if you can't, as a matter of, as a term of employment and as a matter of course, provide a nurturing, psychologically safe environment for me 
then adios, I'm out of here. And so there's this, there's this growing demand from the ethical or moral side of things that says, what are we doing? Psychological safety is, is, is not only a human need, it's a human right. If you have, if you have, if you possess flesh and blood, I'm under obligation to invite you into my society. And the, the only justification that I have to exclude you is if you threaten me with harm. But outside of that, I'm, I'm morally obligated to include you, to be inclusive, to, mm-hmm. to, to, to welcome you, to accept you, to include you, to make, a feel, make you feel a part of the team. So that's the one big force. The other mm-hmm. force is the competitive force. And in the 21st century, organizations, most organizations can't survive unless they innovate. And so then we ask the question, well, what is the biggest barrier to innovation? We know the answer. The biggest barrier is culture. Mm-hmm. But then if you deconstruct that further and you ask, well, what is it about culture that gets in the way? It's a lack of psychological safety. And so psychological safety is crucial to enable innovation in organizations. So these are the two forces that are at work. Mm -hmm. And as I have conducted both qualitative and quantitative research, what became very clear is that there's a natural progression with psychological safety. It advances from one stage to another based on human needs. Mm-hmm. So we have four stages here. We have stage one, which is inclusion safety, which you started, which you mentioned briefly. Stage two, we have learner safety. Stage three, we have contributor safety. And finally, stage four, we have challenger safety. So why don't you take us through the model and how for all of us listening our listeners, think about how we can apply this to our home with our families and with our kids. Let's do it. Right. So stage one, inclusion safety. Inclusion safety means that it's not expensive to be yourself. Hmm. It means that you are included, that you feel a part of the family. This, this is the family. We're talking about the family. You, you feel that you're, you're part of the family, that you've been accepted, that you've been included without fear of being embarrassed or marginalized or punished in some way. And this is really stage one. This is the foundation. Inclusion mm-hmm. safety is, is the foundation. If you don't feel inclusion safety, then you're in a state of exclusion. You don't, you don't feel that you're even part of things. And that's where, that's a very, destructive place to be. So the first the first stage of our stewardship then, I guess, as parents is to create this nurturing environment of inclusion safety. That's our foundation. Mm-hmm. And we I think we all realize that it's delicate and it's not permanent. And so it's something that we have to to cultivate and nurture and reinforce every day. Uh, that's the way mm-hmm. it is. It's it's mm-hmm. it's a delicate thing. 
and we have to protect that. So that's stage one. Then we go to stage two. Stage two is what we call learner safety. Learner safety means that I feel safe to engage in all aspects of the learning process. So what does that mean? I can ask questions. I can give and receive feedback. I can experiment. I can even make mistakes. Again, without being embarrassed or hurt Mm -hmm. in the process. Mm -hmm. Now, learner safety, for me to be able to do that, I need a little higher level of psychological safety because my personal exposure now has gone to a higher level. So what is it that creates psychological safety? Two things, respect and permission. Those two things have to come together. So it's the intersection of respect and permission. Now, for learner safety, well, let's go back. For inclusion safety, what what do I have to do to be included? I just have to be human. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> and and the, the one of the principles that I lay out in the book, Dr. Dan, is that worth precedes worthiness. With inclusion safety, we're not talking about your worthiness. We're not going to weigh you in the balance to see if you're lacking. You have inherent worth, therefore you are entitled to inclusion safety. Now, when we get to learner safety, the social exchange is a little different. I'm going to encourage your learning in exchange for you engaging in learning. Hmm. But I'm going to be the first mover because what if I'm dealing with children that maybe they don't have the confidence to learn? So do I withhold my encouragement? No, I never withhold. I'm the first mover. Mm-hmm. And I may be, I may have, to, I may have to be the repository of of the fears of my children until they can develop enough confidence to engage more fully in that learning process. Mm-hmm. That's not unusual. No, we all bring inhibitions and fears and anxieties to the learning process. I I have a question about what's going in my mind, taking it back to the foundation of inclusion. And I like what you said. It's not expensive to be yourself and you can be yourself without being embarrassed or marginalized. So now I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the, you know, as you say, this is a, a, it's a balancing act and it's a tough combination. uh, It's a, it's a tough, um, formula because our kids are growing and now I'm thinking of the adolescent. Let's just say the where it gets can get a little more challenging because of a youth pre-adolescence um, identity development. So I want to listen to this music. I want to I want to have blue hair. I want to pierce my ear. Um, as they get older, um, I'm exploring um, my sexual identity. I mean, all of these things just to go right in our faces of what people are facing. This is really challenging in my experience for parents to hold hold stage one, hold the inclusion when they're being pressed, so to speak. Mm-hmm. This This gets to what I think is the essential and and often elusive combination for those of us who are parents. I know for my wife, Tracy, and me, this has been, this is a challenge. And that is the parenting has to maintain this, this, this balance of love and accountability. Mm-hmm. And that's not easy mm-hmm. because 
the the failure patterns in parenting are there are three primary failure patterns at least that I can see based on the research. The one the first one is neglect. You're just not there. Mm-hmm. You're an absentee landlord. That's that's failure pattern number one. Failure pattern number two is that you're enabling your child. You're 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 coddling them too much. You're creating dependency and learned helplessness. That's failure pattern number two. Failure pattern number three is that you're coercive, you're authoritarian, and you're destructive in that way. So we're trying to avoid those three failure patterns with a a combination of love and accountability. Mm-hmm. What I've learned is that you have to maintain the accountability, and sometimes that's not easy, and sometimes there is enforcement that has to happen. But through it all, the child, in my opinion, the child has to know, has to have a deep-seated belief that they are loved, even mm-hmm. when they are being held accountable. They can, they can always sense, they can always perceive your intent. That mm-hmm. Every child understands they can smell intent. And so if the love is still there during accountability, Mm -hmm. they can handle that. They're not going to be wounded by that. Mm -hmm. It's it's when we leave a position of love and compassion and empathy that the hurt can be introduced into that relationship. Now, that isn't to say that we're we're not going to get sideways sometimes with our adolescents. I mean, we my wife and I certainly have. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have three sons and three daughters, <laughs> goodness sakes. <laughs> and so, I mean, we've had a lot of teenagers. Yes, you It's probably not an issue that we haven't dealt with. Mm-hmm. But that, mm-hmm. that combination, that love and accountability, that's, that's where the magic happens. If yeah. you lose one side or the other of, of that combination, I think you're going to get off, you're going to get off track. Well said. And, um, I stopped you when you're on learner safety and just looking ahead, as I know we mentioned that stage four, which we're going to get to is challenger safety. Let's loop back to this, especially with our teenagers, because there's a lot of challenging that's built into that developmental phase of life, right? So I think you're going to have something to say about that when we get there. Um, Okay, so we've got inclusion, we've got learner safety, and... um, you were talking about in learner safety, it's like, so when is a child ready to learn, right? How, is it up to us as leaders to, to nurture the learning? And how do we nurture the learning? And how do we push or lead? The learning, well, it's interesting because if we think back, we used to, in our society, typically we had a great reliance on on the schools as a social socializing agent. We had an over-reliance in some cases. And I think we, you know, parents uh, in past generations, they often parented through benign neglect. Mm-hmm. They would let, they would let the schools take care of their part. They would let the, they would let society take care of its part and um, other institutions that we leaned on heavily. You can't do that anymore. And there's no more benign neglect. And so we have to be active participants. We have to be 
very purposeful and deliberate in the way that we're participating with our with our children in the learning process. And so it's both supporting their formal learning and then also supporting their informal learning. And I think with learner safety, so much of it is, do we take an inquiry-based approach? Are we asking questions? Mm-hmm. Are we leading them and nurturing them through questions rather than answers? Well, let me I'll give you a tool, Dr. Dan, that may be helpful to the listeners. So in the corporate world, we, we talk about coaching and developing coaching skills. We have what's called the coaching continuum. And the co- coaching continuum, this is a tool that's a little bit similar to the last one. At one end of the coaching continuum is what we call the tell-in, T-E-L-L, I'm telling. Mm-hmm. At the other end of the coaching continuum is the is the ask end. So I'm asking. A good parent is obviously going to make use of the entire coaching continuum from telling all the way to asking. But if we find as a parent that we're spending too much time at the tell end of the continuum, that's not a good thing. Because that's where we breed the dependency and the learned helplessness. That's where we are actually decelerating the learning process. We're getting in the way mm-hmm. with all of our telling. So we need to shift to the ask end. And this is where, as parents, we can conduct a personal inventory. We can ask ourselves, am I asking enough? Mm-hmm. Can I shift is, is there an opportunity for me to do more asking? Because when you ask, you transfer the analytical work to the child. Mm-hmm. You're not doing it for them. If you keep telling them, then you're, ta- you're removing the requirement of critical thinking. You're doing it for them. And so we want to shift as much as we can to, to that that ask end of the, of the coaching continuum and accelerate the development of critical thinking skills. So there's Mm -hmm. just a thought that might be. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, a poignant thought because it also takes us in my mind to, um, the next stage, which is if you're asking the, you're giving them an opportunity also to contribute, right? right? To the contribute to contributor safety. So tell us about contributing and feeling safe in doing so. Contributor safety is stage three, and it means that you are able to contribute as a full-fledged member of the team, in this case, the family, again, and you feel safe about it. You feel socially, emotionally, in every way, you feel safe that you can do that. Now, this, again, this continues to, to mirror the natural progression of human need because when we learn something, our automatic desire is to go use and apply what we learn. So that's why contributor safety naturally follows learner safety. But mm-hmm. there's more to it. So what does the child want to do? The child wants autonomy. The child wants perhaps some guidance, but the child wants to contribute and make a meaningful difference with some autonomy and that's very consistent with a basic definition of parenting which is a transfer of ownership to the child 
right. this gradual transfer of autonomy. And so stage three contributor safety is vital. We need to be delegating as much as we can while managing risk prudently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they they want that. I, I know, and I can't tell you how many times our children early on, they'd say, let me do it. I want to do it, Dad. I just yep. want to do it by myself. Yep. And, and, it, was, and, and it was like a natural instinct for them. Right. And, and I've been talking a lot these days about resilience. Um, seems to be something that we're all needing uh, a strong dose of and also needing to uh, grow in our children. And uh, Dr. Kenneth Ginsburg, a resiliency expert who uh, talks about the seven C's of resilience, one of them is um, con- contribution. And just knowing that you are being a valuable contributor to an organization, to your community, to your home, to your school, really builds a sense of internal resilience. Makes complete sense. Okay, now, of course, stage four, which I think we're moving up up the uh, up or down the ladder here to what could be the most challenging, um, which is in the title, right? Challenger yeah. safety, right? It's like tell the stage of challenging, and I'm thinking about our kids who challenge us mm-hmm. and our beliefs of our parenting beliefs, and we're supposed to be right. You're supposed to listen to us. You know, we think this way in our family, and we know to grow healthy people. We need our healthy people, healthy citizens. We need people to feel comfortable and safe, challenging the norm. Right. So, as you said, stage four is is called challenger safety, and what it means is that you feel safe in challenging the status quo. Now. This is the ultimate and culminating stage of psychological safety. And it makes sense because when you're challenging the status quo, you are at the highest level of personal risk and vulnerability. To challenge the status quo is, is, is inherently risky and, and, and potentially dangerous. Now, how this plays out for parents and children I think is one of the most important things that we need to to ponder about as parents, because again, the old in well, the 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 old imperial model of parenting is that I am the repository of all answers. I know the answers. I'll tell you what to do, I'll guide you, direct you, dispatch you. Now there's there is truth that parents are there to be role models, to be teachers, to be mentors, to to guide and encourage. But there are plenty of times when what we really need is we need a collaborative model where mm-hmm. the child is given a license to disagree and challenge, mm. and the parent is able to accommodate that dissent. Yes. Without any a big emotional response. If a parent can learn that, then that is disarming and de-escalating and it validates the child. The child says, so I can weigh in on this. Mm-hmm. So I can mm-hmm. put something on the table. You'll listen to me on this, especially if it's a critical issue and it means a lot. That's incredibly empowering to a child. 
Incredibly, and you said the uh, the word accommodate. That if a parent's can accommodate, and what it also made me think of is, can a parent tolerate even before they can accommodate? Because you know, many people are raised by a certain a certain um, paradigm, which is basically you know, just listen to me, do as I say. Um, and this is a this is. I don't think f- fair to say an evolved way of looking at your and, and back to leadership. Like your job is not to coerce or to control. Your job's to influence in a positive direction of growth and health. That's right. You're trying to prepare well-adjusted, contributing individuals and citizens to society. How can you do that if? they don't feel that they have a voice. Right. The, these are skills that they need to develop. They need to develop self-efficacy. Mm-hmm. And the only mm-hmm. way that they do that is, is through actual experience. They're not going to develop that reading a book. This is all experiential. Mm-hmm. And so here's what we learn in the workplace, and I think it's the same in the home, Dr. Dan, and that is that In the workplace, when we talk about challenger safety, what we have learned is that the leader's emotional response to dissent is the most important signal that goes out to the team or the organization and it reverberates and everybody Mm. pays attention to that. I think it's the same in the the family, isn't it? Absolutely. 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 And we say our kids are always watching, they're always listening, they're always looking, and they're feeling our energy and emotions, even if we're not always saying something directly. And uh, I think this is so, so critical, um, Tim, how you're talking about this, the notion of leading through safety, psychological safety. And it is no um, accident that in every one of the stages, the second word is safety. And just to bring this back around as we lead towards our parent footprint moment question here is for everyone to really hear that our kids need to be in a place of readiness, of willingness, of openness for growth, for experimentation, to develop their self-confidence, their self-concept, their self-efficacy, as Tim has said. And the only way to do so is if we create an environment where they feel safe to do so, period. Mm -hmm. I I, I completely agree with that. Um, I, I think the research bears it out, the empirical research bears it out in organizations, and all of my personal experience as a husband and father also bears it out. I truly believe it. So we're going to ask you a question about a personal experience here with that parent footprint moment question. Are you ready? I, I think I'm ready. <laughs> okay, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Okay, Jim, tell us about a time when you became aware of yourself as an individual or as a parent, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your child. Okay. So this is not so flattering of me, but I remember an experience where I had a son participating in on an athletic team, and I went to his game, and I... I was cheering for him. 
but I was, I was a little animated, a little too animated, a little too vocal. And, and that's because I kind of grew up in locker rooms and, uh, that was a big part of my growing up. But after the game, I talked to my son and he was not at all happy with my efforts to support him that way mm-hmm. from the side mm-hmm. of the, from the side mm-hmm. of the court, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And I really had to do some introspection. I had to humble myself and I had to talk to him and I had to ask him, so tell me why that, that you didn't feel that that supported you at all, but you, you want you, you, you didn't like that at all. And, and we sat down, we had a real heart to heart conversation. And this is a, a son that's a, a mild mannered, sensitive young man. Mm-hmm. And he did not find that helpful he, he, uh, and he was able, I was able to draw him out enough mm-hmm. that he could express those honest thoughts to me. I really took that to heart, but I realized, I realized that I needed to have an open heart and an open mind and I needed to change my behavior. Mm-hmm. And I also needed to study, uh, again, the individual disposition and temperament of right. each of my children. And I needed to parent them a little bit differently. I needed to personalize and I needed to pay very close attention to their feedback. That is wonderful. And on, on several levels. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And it's those um, less uh, desirable moments that we learn the most and our kids learn the most from us. And um, long before you had written this book, you were practicing, obviously, psychological safety for him to be able to tell this uh, recently very animated person <laughs> That's right. at the sports event um, his feelings, which are not clearly not something that comes easy for this sensitive soul. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that with us, Dr. Tim. Tell everyone, thank you for sharing all of your experience uh, and wisdom with us today. And this, your book um, and these concepts, you know, are so far reaching, of course, um, to the core of organizations, which um, many of us are spending our most, uh, most of our time these days, but also the most important job we have as parents. Where can uh, people find your book and find your work? Sure, the book's available everywhere, and then um, we'd love to have you reach out. Our website is leaderfactor.com, and you can. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Timothy R. Clark, and we'd love to to hear from you and and um, discuss any questions that you have. Dr. Tim Clark, everyone. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for being on the show today and wishing you and your family the best during this time. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and learning more about the most important job that we have. We need to heed Dr. Tim's words about keeping our kids safe, feeling psychologically safe so they can learn, so they can grow 
that we look into our toolbox of parenting and look towards the powers of influence and persuasion and be open to our kids challenging us, contributing all in psychological safe ways. You know where to find us, www.parentfootprint.com. Tell people about this podcast, spread the word. As always, be the person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave?